Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 7 of Orion's Belt, a games industry podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Lance Tallman. And I'm one of your hosts, Connor Ball. And today, we are going to be taking a deep dive in the board game Scythe. You heard it here. We're actually doing it. We did it. We, we've made it to the Scythe episode, the long-awaited Scythe episode. <laughs> Not that it's very special, but it's, you know. It's special to us. You it's know? special to us, and that's what counts. So we've been doing a good amount of prep for this episode. We... We've been playing Scythe for a few, or I've been playing it for a few years. We have like a, a collective friend group have been playing it for for a good amount, at least at least a year at this point. Yeah, at least a year. Um, but in preparation for this episode, we wanted to kind of play it a little bit more, review the rules, and really hash out a bunch of things. Um, that way we wouldn't be giving you misinformation or anything of the sort. So we've gone ahead and done that, and we're going to be recording today for you a two-episode or a two-part deep dive into Scythe. So very similar to our Valorant episode where we kind of talk about what Valorant is um, and like explaining the game in our part or our first part. In part two, uh, we'll dive in and talk about the design elements of uh, Scythe, just like in Valorant, uh, and get more of like our, our take on it. Whereas part one will be more explanatory. So some disclaimers. If you have already played Scythe, you already know how to play Scythe, you can just skip this episode. We're just going to be talking about it. If you want to just hear Lance and Connor explaining a game, feel free to stick around. That's totally great. Um, but if you want to hear about the meat of the discussion, I would say, would you kind of? Oh yeah, yeah. This agree? We're, we're really just going to be explaining very the very bare bones of how to play Scythe. So if you haven't played or if you've already played Scythe, no need to watch this episode. And also, just don't watch this episode and go play Scythe and then watch the next one. Exactly. That that's also really good to point out. Also, it's important to note this is not. I would say we do a pretty comprehensive job here in our outline of explaining what Scythe is, but it's not like a a turn-by-turn walk through every single detail of the game Scythe. We're going to give you enough information so that if you've never played Scythe before, you can jump into episode two or part two, for example, for for that matter, uh, and know what's going on and understand everything we're talking about. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds, sounds perfect. Sweet. So let's jump to our overview. So for overview, we're going to be talking about what Scythe is, uh, give a quick razor pitch of the game, then our big, uh, sorry, then we'll give a general overview of the game, uh, kind of mechanically talk about some of that stuff, and then our last thing will be our big topic into how to play Scythe, essentially the core mechanics and all of that good stuff. So before I let Connor jump in and give you guys an overview and start talking about the game, here's the razor pitch. Scythe is an engine building game set in an alternate history 1920s period. It is a time of farming and war, broken hearts and rusted gears, innovation, and valor. In Scythe, each player represents a character from one of five factions of Eastern Europe who are attempting to earn their fortune and claim their faction's stake in the land around the mysterious factory. Players conquer territory, enlist new recruits, reap resources, gain villagers, build structures, and activate monstrous mechs. Did you write that, Lance? I did not write that. Okay. I, I would have been so cool if I, I wrote that. I was about that. to say, that's that's a very good razor pitch, I'd say. Uh, I pulled that from Board Game Geek, which, gotcha. Gotcha. you know, well, very game... big proprietor of Board Game. They, they came and showed out. That was good. Um, yeah, so I'll just go into kind of the general overview of the game. Um, the genre I would put Scythe as is a turn-based strategy. Of course, all games are going to have strategy to them, but there's a lot of planning and decision-making that goes into Scythe. And that's kind of the biggest attraction, I would say, to it. So everyone is going to be taking turns and trying to advance them their fractions uh, in various ways. 
And that's kind of the main goal of the game. So there's a lot, a lot of strategy involved. Um, not a lot of randomness, I would say. Definitely. Also, if you haven't seen our real-time strategy episode, that might give you some like tangential concepts. So feel free to check that out as well. Yeah. The second thing I want to really point out about Scythe is the aesthetic. So the aesthetic of Scythe, I would say, if you were to put it into one genre, is steampunk? Yep. Steampunk. I would completely agree. Um, because basically, as as was said in the Razor pitch, the game is supposed to kind of take place in like this kind of 1920s, but there's these really big mechs and kind of, you know, steam pe- steampunk technology. But what's really cool is that this theme is reflected very well on all of the pieces of the game. So there's a lot of different cards and on the boards and I guess even in the pieces too, really just kind of conveys this theme. And that makes it a lot more, what's the word? Like cohesive? Cohesive. Or? Yeah. It's, 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 co- it's it, it feel, makes it feel more cohesive and just, it's easier to kind of get yourself into the game and kind of get excited for it. And a good example of this is that, We'll talk about in the core mechanics. There's these one cards that are used for uh, combat and all they have is a number on them. So obviously this could be done in a variety of different ways if you just need to draw a random number. But instead they did an entire deck of cards and each card has like a piece of artwork on it. And this artwork is supposed to reflect this theme and it just goes to show, it really makes the game feel, yeah, exactly. That was a good word, more cohesive. Um, And so I really like the aesthetic of it. I think it's a big part of the game. Yeah. Here's an interesting fact. Do you know what the, and here I'm going to butcher this, but the art budget for Scythe. So it's like this beautiful painted aesthetic, everything Connor talked about. It was so expensive. It was millions of dollars to commission the art for Scythe, which is crazy to think about. Um, I think I mentioned it a few times. I, I do work on a board game that is coming out in prep for release. And when we're talking about like art, art, our art budgets, I'm thinking about, a lot of, you know, the blockbuster hits like, you know, Magic the Gathering, stuff like that. And Scythe is up there and stands out. I mean, the art is so good. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons why they really allocated a lot of funds to make sure you pick up this game and you are just immersed in its beauty. Oh, yeah. And I remember I was initially drawn to it in the board game store because of the, the box art. Oh, every time. Box art? under That's its own episode. True. That's its <laughs> own episode. But anyways, really cool aesthetic. I, I think truly adds to the game. Um, next thing that is pretty appealing is the player count. It's one to seven. I think it's one to five base game, one to seven if you get the faction expansion. Um, but that's really nice. That's a lot of different players, a lot of players you can have. You can also play it by yourself if you notice the one, which yep. is always, I think, a good feature to have for board games. Um, and we're going to touch on this in the second part, but the breadth of the game, and this is really why we kind of categorize it as a turn-based strategy, there's a lot of different options and pathways for you to take in terms of winning the game. And that's what makes it fun. And that's what makes it a strategy game. Um, and that's really important. And we think that, or at least I think that Scythe does this very, very well. And so that's why we really wanted to highlight this game in particular, just to kind of, you know, talk about how having these options makes a strategy game, a strategy game. Um, and so, the basic functionality of the game, we'll get into the core mechanics here in a second, but basically you're on a map and there's a bunch of different territories and you're going to try and move around the map, gain resources and complete certain objectives. And whoever gets the most gold, the most wealth by doing all of these things ends up winning the game. 
Yeah, I'd say that that pretty much summarizes it. Um, if you think about a real-time strategy, and I just use that because we've done an episode on it, the whole point is like territory control. We talk about 4X games in that episode. Uh, explore, exploit, um, exterminate. exterminate. Uh, Another one. One and one more. <laughs> There's one more X. X. And the whole thing is you're, you're like building up some sort of uh, ramping production and then you're going to take over something else to, to win the game. And fundamentally that's, that's what Scythe is. Yeah, I would agree. So if anyone, if anyone here has played a game like civilization, I would say there's a lot of similarities to that. Absolutely. So let's jump right into the, the meat of the discussion, the core mechanics. And so this, we're, we're, we're just going to give you, we're going to go through pretty much everything. It's a, it's a long outline, as I said. Um, and we will jump into, faction selection gold income maps units so many things um so i won't waste any more time connor do you want to talk about faction selection yeah so in the game when you sit down to play everyone has to play as a certain faction what's interesting is that the game the rule book recommends that this is done randomly so that means you don't really get to decide which faction you're going to play and this is because every faction is unique and that every faction is going to have a different ability uh, different mech abilities, which we'll get into in a second, um, and a different starting location. So on the map, there's if you're playing as the Saxony, which is one of the factions, you're always going to start in the same location, and you're always going to have the same ability, whatever, whatever, whatever. And so that's really cool to the game. That makes it fun, so you can play as different factions, but there's factions in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is a really interesting component and I I gotta like hold back. It's weird not being able to jump into like the design stuff because that'll happen in part two. Um, but we'll move on to gold. So gold fundamentally is how everything works in this game. Uh, one of the beauties of Scythe is at the end of the game, everything converts to gold. And so it's a really easy cleanup process and calculation for, for the win. So you have actual gold, which is your income. And then in some, by some sort of conversion rate, every other resource in the game, which we'll talk about in the next, you know, 10, 20 minutes, converts to gold by some degree. And that whether that be territory control, um, actual gold counts as gold, like that you're hanging on to, um, various stars or like your victory conditions and everything. And we'll, we'll get into that. But just a precursor, gold is how you win the game. Whoever has the most gold wins the game at the very end. Yeah, and just like Lance said, everything gets converted into gold. So however you're advancing yourself, it's probably going to be worth gold at some point later in the game or at the end of the game. Um, next thing I mentioned in the basic functionality um, of the game, the map. And so I'll go into a little bit more depth here. So the map is built of hexagons. That is, every single hexagon is its own space. So if you want to move one unit from one space to another space, it's one hexagon to another hexagon. I'll be calling them hexes. Um, each of these hexes on the map have a different type. And so there's resource hexes and non-resource hexes. The resource hexes contain, um, consist of farms, forests, mountains, and tundras, and villages. And the non-resource hexes contain, uh, consist of lakes and the factory hex, which is only one, and it's always in the center. And so these hexes are just, we'll explain later, are used to generate resources. And like I said, factions start in different areas, which means they're going to initially have different access to different types of hexes. Yeah, the hexes are like that's they have like the yields or like the potential to generate those resources yeah. so exactly like connor said 
uh, it's like fertile land spread out across and not fertile always, but, you know, resource rich or intensive land that you can harvest and eventually attain. So then now we get to units after talking about all these hexes. So there are a bunch of different types of units in the game. And by a bunch, I mean three. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so characters, mechs, and workers are the big three. So characters, um, there is one for each faction. And so every player, say there's three players, there'll be three. Say there's seven players, there'll be seven. It's just your character. It's you, kind of. And also, each character has an animal. Oh, yes. Very important. Very important. On their, they're these really nice plastic figurines, like mm-hmm. kind of like your D&D character mm-hmm. standees. And they all have some sort of, you're right, cool animal. There's like bears, wolves. I think there's a monkey. There's a monkey. There's an eagle. Is there a deer? No. I don't think so. That'd be sweet, though. I want oh, there's like a, there's oh, like a, a, like a buffalo or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or an yeah. ox. Yeah, anyways, something like that. Anyways, gives gives each character gets each faction a little little personality. Definitely, and in addition to these characters appear on the faction board, um, so you can kind of see them in color. With very, the artwork that we were talking about earlier. Yes, very, very picturesque. It's super cool. Mm. So the characters have a few different uses that are distinctly different from mechs and workers. So characters are used to fight. Uh, they are the only pieces in the game that can collect exploration, sorry, encounter tokens, um, and subsequently use those tokens to gain encounter cards. And so let me explain this because there's not really a great place to talk about encounter tokens, so we kind of slid it in here. So across the board, there are these circular tokens called encounter tokens, and they are there's usually at least one near your um, starting area. So the the thought is pretty much every character should be able to get one, like uncontested throughout the game, as long as you invest like two movement turns, I think it is to get it. Um, and what these encounter cards do is they're usually, they're, they're cool in two ways. Uh, if you've ever played the game Above and Below, that's a, a really incredible game that also does something kind of like this. Um, they, they offer like a narrative context to some of the things that are happening and they give you like a really nice mechanical boon. And so the, you grab an encounter card and you get three options and you choose one of those options. And it's usually you either gain something straight up, like just a free bonus, which is awesome. Or you pay, you incur some sort of like penalty to get an even better bonus. And like by penalty, that's maybe too harsh. It's pretty much always worth it. I would say to pay if you choose that option yeah you're really just paying to get something better exactly not having to pay anything and some of these are really insane um and we'll talk about that later i have to stop myself (laughs) (laughs) uh so these are super interesting because there are more i I, actually yeah yeah there's 12 i think right and i believe there's 12 encounter tokens in the entire game and there's only seven factions so Mm -hmm. even with seven players uh, you everyone will likely get one and then some people will get even more than one mm-hmm. and usually you want to go for them it's like one more point across the the map to, to buy over so that's um what characters are are mainly used for for moving uh themselves uh taking territories fighting and then in- grabbing these encounter tokens yeah and then mechs are pretty similar they are also used to fight so they will get get in this get to this in a second or later about how you want to control territories with units. The only two units that do this are characters and mechs. Workers aren't really units that can contest these hexes, right? Um, which makes sense. But the mechs can also contest these hexes and they can fight other factions. And the second ability that is of worth note is mechs can carry workers. 
So that just means when a mech moves, it's allowed to take a bunch of workers with it. Once we explain the movement and the action economy, that'll make a little more sense. But just something to note. And yeah, important to touch on characters can't carry workers. Yeah. Only mechs can. And it makes sense. You don't want to have like 50 workers on an ox, you know? Yeah, no, it just <laughs> doesn't work out. doesn't work out. Okay, so then there's workers. And workers are really interesting because they're used to generate resources. And this is your... If you've played any real, most strategy games, you have some sort of harvesting unit. It's like a generic unit that usually can't fight. This is kind of the trope. And you invest in them to harvest some sort of resource. That's just usually how it works out. And it is exactly the same in this game. You spawn workers and you yield a certain amount based on however many there are on a hex. So if there's three workers on a hex and you produce, which we'll talk about how you do that later, you gain three resources. So it's great because it just linearly scales with the amount of um, workers who which are on each specific yep. hex. Yep, and the more miners you have in a mine, more resources you're going to be able to get out of it. Basically how it is. So now those are the three units, and we'll move on to how movement works. So like I said, and we'll get into this in the action economy, whenever you get an action that allows you to move a unit, you can move one unit, so that means one worker, one mech, one character from one hex to an adjacent hex. Now there's a few there's a few restrictions in play and that basically prevent you from going to certain hexes and I'll say some of them. You can't move on to lakes. So like I said that there's the non-resource hexes, the lake tiles, you're not allowed to move on to those lakes. So they're kind of like barriers. You also can't move across rivers. So there's some hexes that are connected and there's like a little there's artwork of a river. So that means you can't go over to that hex because you're not allowed to cross rivers. And third, workers are not allowed to move into enemy territory that's controlled by any of their units. So again, we'll explain this more uh, later, but workers kind of have to stay within either neutral territory or territory that you own. Yeah, absolutely. And so kind of combining all of these, right? Um, the, each of these units has a very specific purpose. And as such, like just breaking them down into these segments, you'll use them for different things. And because they're so niche, you'll be able to to kind of bring them and strategize with, with each of their respective purposes. Uh, okay, great. So now we get to, to combat, which is... I don't know. I think maybe the most daunting, definitely the most tense segment of the game whenever you get into into combat and you're it's like a battle of wits. Connor, do you want to explain how combat works? Yeah, so combat is how combat works is when you move a mech or a character onto a hex that has an opponent's mech or character and you end and you after you do all your movement, you stop there, then combat happens. And so there's kind of a stat in this game in the game called power, and you can increase you increase it and decrease it throughout the game. And basically, you secretly choose up to seven power to spend. And your opponent also chooses up to seven power to spend. In addition to this seven power, you can play a combat card, and these are just kind of like small bonuses. So like a combat card could have a plus two or a plus three or a plus four. And you can play a combat card for each of your units that's currently engaged on that hex. So for example, if you moved one character into an opponent hex 
an opponent's hex who had one character, you could play one combat card in addition to the seven power that you spent that you spend. Also, but instead, let's say you had a character and a mech, you moved both of them during your turn before your movement ends onto that hex. Then you could spend two combat cards plus the seven from your stat on the board. And basically, whoever ends up having the most power wins the combat. So if your opponent reveals, oh, I spent four power and I used this card that gave me plus three, but then you, you know, spent seven power and used a card that gave you plus two, you would have more power than them. You'd win the combat. You would gain the benefits of winning that combat, which means they're going to have to, you're going to take control of the hex and, you know, reap the benefits of doing so. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to note that you can only spend the maximum of seven power if you have that power right which yeah. and the reason connor didn't talk about it is because we haven't explained how that works but essentially you have a resource called power and you can only expend as much power as you currently have so that produces some a little bit of strategy can you can target people who don't have lower or higher power okay the next thing and this is one of the big ones is the action economy how do you do stuff in this game how how does that scale what um how does that work in that regard? So we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of jump right in. So we talk about player boards, which we mentioned at the beginning. Um, they are assigned uh, randomly and they are completely asymmetrical in design. And these are different from the character boards because the character boards are fa your faction and these player boards are like your your industry kind of, your production because I, I know, so they're all labeled. There's like patriotic, manufacturing, engineering, industrial, stuff like that, industrial. Like that. Yeah, so it's like your, your production powerhouse. And they're all geared slightly differently at doing different things. Fundamentally, every single person can do the same thing. Like everyone can take the same actions. But how easy or hard it is to take certain actions is randomized, essentially. Yeah, and basically what, what these what these boards have is they have top row actions and bottom row actions. So the board is separated into four columns. Each column has a top row action and a bottom row action. The asymmetry comes in is that how these top row and bottom row actions pair up are different on each board. Every player has the access to the same type of actions. They're just paired differently because on a turn, you choose a column on the board you take you may take that top row and then you take the corresponding bottom row you can't take the top row of like the leftmost column and then decide to take the bottom row of the rightmost column has to be the same column. has to be the same column and so we're just going to go over all of those actions so we're going to go over the four top row actions and the four bottom row actions so i'll start with the four top row actions perfect you've got trade if you take the trade top row action you get to pay gold to gain two resources or increase your popularity. Popularity is a stat kind of like power within the game that you kind of want to increase and will also decrease throughout the game. Second top row action, bolster. You pay gold to increase your power or draw more combat cards. Like I just discussed with, or we just discussed with combat. Yep. To gain power, you can gain power and the combat cards that you spend through different actions. This is one of them. Then you have the move action. This one doesn't have any cost because if an action has a cost, you have to pay the cost. If you can't pay the cost, can't take the action. But the move action doesn't have any cost. You don't have to spend any gold for it. And you get to either move units or gain gold. So obviously, if you can't, you have to be able to take an action at some point. If you have no gold, this is the action that you take. Um, you're able to move units or gain gold. 
Fourth one is to produce. And so this is where I will explain the workers a little better. When you take the produce action, you select a certain amount of tiles of hexes on the board, and each of those hexes are going to produce resources. When a hex produces resources, it produces an amount of resources equal to what type of hex it is and equal to how many workers are on that hex. So, for example, let's say you have three of your workers on a forest hex. If you were to take the produce action and choose that hex, you would get three wood. So, to go over all of the resource hexes, the farm hexes give you food, the forest hexes give you wood, mountain hexes give you metal, and tundra hexes give you oil. Basically, all of these resources are going to be used to pay for the bottom row actions. There's also the fifth resource hex, the villager hex. That's how you generate more workers. So if you produce on a villager hex, you get a place, you get another worker. The workers are limited. You only have a maximum of eight, or is it 10 including? You have a maximum of 10 workers. Yep. You start with two, and then you can make more. Once you get 10 workers, you can't make any more workers. If you were to produce on a village tile, nothing happens. Right. But for, uh, food, wood, metal, oil, that's unlimited. Even if you were to run out of the little pieces that are supposed to signify the resources on a tile. Um, yeah, those are unlimited. So those are the top pro actions. Those are kind of supposed to be your generic actions to help you move around the map, generate your resources, get your income, increase your popularity and your power, which are the, the, the basic stats you use throughout the game. Yeah, absolutely. So you're taking these top row actions and usually the cost for these is really low. Like it's, you're pretty much, tr you should be able to take a top row action every single turn, no problem. Like you don't really have to set up to take a top row action. Sometimes you do, but it's it's rare. Most of them are deliberately cheap. So, and that's because they're the resource production actions, right? So then you have bottom row actions and this is where a lot of the strategy comes in, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And these are how you produce your bigger things. So like mechs, buildings, um, and a bunch of other stuff, which I will talk about right now. So the bottom row action. So first you have upgrade. Upgrade lets you improve a top row action and a bottom row action. Um, and how that works is you have these little squares on your, your little board and they basically block out a benefit on the top row at the start of the game. And then there's squares on the bottom of the board, which are your costs. And you just get to move one of those squares from the top to the bottom. And it sounds really complicated, but all it does is it gives you an extra benefit and takes away an ex a detriment. So you're simultaneously making your top row actions better and your bottom row actions better by upgrading. So it's a really powerful ability. And we'll talk about how they balance that later. So uh, the next thing is deploy. Deploy is super self-explanatory. Basically, it's some sort of cost. It's usually metal to create a mech. And what you do is you pay anywhere between two and four metal, and you place a mech from your faction board onto the map. And this is important because placing mechs does two things. One, it gives you a combat unit, but two, it also unlocks some sort of passive ability for you. And that's all listed on your, your faction board, not your like industry production board, your actual faction board. Usually the one people go for first is called Riverwalk of some sort. And that lets you get off your home home base tile. Um, there are four mechs in total to place and each mech placed uh, gives you a bunch of different um, benefits, which I just talked about. 
Uh, and also sometimes it's important, you just wanna get a mech out there, even if it's not for combat, to move workers because workers, unless you have some sort of passive ability, can't cross rivers uh, without either a mine or a mech. Yeah, because these passive abilities that you gain, they're usually uh, <clears throat> enhancements to your mobility or maybe combat effectiveness. But specifically for the mobility enhancements, it does only applies to your mechs and your character. So that means your workers don't gain the benefits. Right, 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 right. Um, okay, so the next one's build. You get to place one of four buildings onto the map, and you get a bunch of rewards for doing all this stuff. There's there's a lot to this game, which is why we're kind of breaking it down in this regard. Um, but there are four buildings, so we'll go through them. The armory and the monument are essentially the exact same thing. Mechanically, they're no different. They just add rewards to the top row actions. Um, the monument adds popularity, uh, I believe, and the mine adds power. No, no, sorry. The armory adds power and the monument adds popularity. That checks out. I just read the, read the thing wrong. Okay, then the mine increases your mobility because what it does is it lets you place a tunnel on the map. And usually, pretty much, I don't know, like 90% of the time, you're gonna place the mine in your home territory that way you can traverse from your home territory to the mainland by going through these tunnels that are built into the map. And I'll explain tunnels just real quick. Basically, like I said, to move into another hex, you have to move into a hex that's adjacent, i.e. this hex is right next to this other hex. But there are these um, symbols uh, on the map that are called tunnels, and basically it means that you can go from this hex to any other hex that also has a tunnel symbol on it so it's kind of like a shortcut and then the mine is saying okay this is your own personal shortcut so now you can take you can place it on whichever hex you want and now this hex also has that tunnel symbol yeah absolutely so that's how the mine works and then there's the mill and the mill is super self-explanatory you just place it and it counts as a worker in whichever hex it's in you can just produce on that tile as if it was a worker and so those are your your four buildings and that is the the third category of bottom row actions creating a building and it will do one of those things the last one's enlisting and this one i told connor this before we started recording i think enlisting is like a bad word because it doesn't really feel like you're enlisting um but the reason it's called enlist is because what you do is you take uh you gain some sort of one-time bonus immediately uh, it can be a few different things they're not super pertinent but one of them for example is like gain two popularity so okay great you pay the cost to enlist and you gain two popularity. But the more important thing is that enlisting gives you a new passive ability uh, that only applies to your adjacent players. So you can't really control it. You can choose which enlist ability you get and eventually if you want all of them. But what the ability is, is let's say I enlist on the bottom row for like building, right? We just talked about building. If I enlist on that bottom row, anytime an adjacent player to me, so if in a, we're in a four-player game, anytime two of my three opponents that are next to me build a building, I get that enlist benefit. So that's kind of how it works. It's like a, a new passive ability. And you're probably thinking, okay, wait, how exactly does that work? What's the strategy about that? We cover that in the second, in part two of the episode. So tune in for that. Okay, so those are all of the bottom row actions. Super, super quick, kind of like giving you a very general basis. You, when you look at Scythe, and we talk about this in our root episode, I'm sure. We talk about how you look at Scythe and it seems to be the most complicated game ever, just like in its visual presentation. And Connor, you can you can dispute this if you want. Um, 
But the game, I think, is relatively straightforward. So even though we might be saying stuff and it's like, I don't really know what's going on, when you actually play the game, it's a lot more self-explanatory. Yeah, I think once you just <clears throat> kind of dip your toes into the water, the mechanics of the game are very straightforward. <clears throat> and the complexity comes from the strategy, i.e. how you're going to use those mechanics. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a lot, I know. But basically, you take these top row actions and these bottom row actions, they're connected to one another. So it kind of restricts as to which actions you can take and how you can take them. Also, you can't select the same column uh, more than or you can't select it uh, two times in a row. So if you chose them like the third column on your last term, you turn, you can't choose the third column again. So again, this just emphasizes further the connectedness of the top and bottom reactions and how you have to choose different ones but that's how you that's how you play the game that's how you move around the map that's how you generate resources that's how you basically get more points get more gold advance your wealth so you can try and win the game and now i'll talk about one kind of niche uh aspect of the game and it's called the factory so in the very center of the map there's a special tile i think i mentioned it in all the tiles um so yeah, the one factory tile. So this tile, this hex is very important because if you are able to get your character, so it can only be activated by a character, not by a mech or a worker. If you end your character's movement on that tile, similar to like if you were to end your movement on an encounter token, you get to choose what are called factory cards. And what factory cards, it's like an additional column to your player board. So like what, what we've been saying, whenever you take an action, you have to choose one of these four columns. When you get the factory card, you get to kind of browse through this deck and choose a fifth column. And so now, whenever you're going to take your turn, you can choose this additional column. And it usually has a really, really cool action. So for example, it might be you spend one gold and you get to place a building. That's way, way easier than the usual mechanic to place a building way more to, efficient oh, almost yeah. all of them are almost all of them are way more efficient and then the bottom row action is always a move action um but this is important and we'll obviously talk about why this is good in the second episode but it's just always a move action so these cards are really good they give you more options they're usually really really good options so you want to get to the factory also if you get there first you have more options right because as more people go to the factory um the more factory cards are taken away also, the factory counts as three hexes, not as one hexes, as one hex. Um, this is pertinent to how you score at the end of the game. And we'll actually just get into that now. And it's only if you control the factory Yeah, if you tile. control the factory tile, you it counts as three territories instead of one. Absolutely. But yeah, that is a great segue into our last topic for this kind of ex explanatory segment. So we're going to be talking about, okay, we've basically thrown all this information at you. How does that apply to actually winning the game, right? A very, you know, important, I would say, uh, aspect to it. So the game ends when one player collects six stars. What are stars, you might ask? Stars are just victory points, and you get victory points in nine different ways. So there, we're, I, we'll just list, list them out. Um, okay, so when you earn six stars, this is how you do it. You can get all of your upgrades, which we talked about, all of your mechs, all of your buildings, all of your enlistments. You can place all 10 of your workers. Uh, you can complete your objective card, which we'll talk about in one second. Uh, you can win two battles, and each of those battles gives you one star, uh, 
respectively. You can max out your popularity track, max out your power track, and that's it. Those are those are the ways to get six stars. Yeah, and I'll explain the objective card. At the beginning of the game, you were dealt two objective cards, and it's really just a bonus objective, so it has some sort of uh, objective that you have to meet. Like maybe it's, oh, have this and many resources at this point in the game, or control these types of tiles, and if you do, get a star. Um, and some of them are even restrictive. Some, is like, some of them are like, oh, have like two workers and control four territories or something yeah, weird. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, it's just just a little bonus that you can try and, and try and snag as you play the game. And you can only do um, one of these. Yep. And yeah, so that's how you get stars. Whenever a player gets six stars, any player, the game ends. The player doesn't win, the game just ends. Very important distinction. Very, very yeah. important. And so once the game ends, that's when you sort of kind of kind of start cu- accumulating all of your wealth that you've gained throughout the game and it's actually pretty concise so this is how this is how this is how everything is converted into gold yep the territories that you control the resources you control and the stars that you have are all converted into gold there's a little chart on the side of the board that tells you how much coins you get for each territory each star each set of resources but something that's two of note, and this is finally where we get to pl- explain the popularity, the more popularity you have, the more that these things are worth. So if you have a really high popularity, that means your stars are going to be worth more coins at the end of the game. If you have low popularity, they're not going to be worth as much. Um, you just get like better conversions, yeah, which is really Yeah, you get nice. better conversions. And that's, th- that's probably the main way. Those are the three main ways that you get coins. And then also... Any coins that you've accumulated throughout the game, so you kind of have like a, I don't know, like an inventory, right? Or your your coin, your sure. coin pouch. I mean, you're playing Monopoly, right? Mm-hmm. You have money. You got money you're holding. That, that the money, money that you, victory points. Yeah, exactly. the money that you've accumulated throughout the game through different actions. Um, if you didn't, you know, if you were thrifty and didn't spend them all on actions, then that also counts to your total gold amount. And then the last one is there's a building placement card, and I'm just going to briefly touch on this. Basically... You pick a card at the beginning of the game and it says, okay, if you place your buildings in a certain way, then you can generate more coins. For example, one might be if you for, <clears throat> for every um, building that you place next to a lake, you get gold. But that's it. That's the only way that you generate gold. That's the only way you generate points. You just convert it all into gold. You add it all up. Whoever has the most wins. And that's, I mean, that's Scythe in a super... Comprehend? I'm joking. I, that, that's <laughs> that's that's. I mean, really, the game from a mechanical standpoint. Which I know you're sitting here. It's been like 40 minutes. You're probably like scratching your head. I have no idea what's going on. But but fundamentally, the game really isn't that simple. You're gonna take actions. The act, the way you take actions, that action economy is a little bit unintuitive. But once you figure that out, you just take actions and try to meet one of these six conditions, and then everything gets converted to gold. And if you have the most gold, you win. Yeah. And so obviously we probably we probably definitely missed some oh, some, 100% we some missed mechanics and everything. And so if you haven't played Scythe, I recommend you go play Scythe. Absolutely. And it might be helpful before listening to part 2 because that's when we're really just kind of kind of going to assume that you know what Scythe is, how to play Scythe and really just talk about the kind of the design decisions that were put into it. But with that said, we already wrote the outline for part 2 and 
if you've listened to this episode, you will be totally good. Like, yes. We're not we're not covering anything super crazy, but that is you know where we'll we'll flex hopefully our our design muscles and talk about some of the nuances to say. So I'm sorry if this episode's been a little bit dry, but we thought it was really important to give you that foundational basis so we could talk about this game. Connor, is there anything else before we jump into part two? No, I think that's it. Sweet. Well, we will see you in the next part.